Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast we interview lawyers bring beyond corporate law. Each week you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. is sponsored by SOAS Law Society. Aligning their values of inclusivity and diversity in the legal profession, SOAS stands out as a law society that cares about its members. So if you're at least curious, be sure to check them out at soaslawsoc.com. Welcome back to another episode. As we approach the spring and exam season, we at Legal Tea wanted to make sure that the last few episodes this season were among some of the best. Both exciting in the practice areas they explore, but also inspiring in the takeaway lessons they leave you. That's why this week's episode is all about contentious trusts and disputes. Now, I know what you're thinking. Who on God's earth would want to relive the nightmare of trust and equity as a full-time career? However, here to debunk that stigma and reveal the actually exciting trends going on in the practice area is Al McDonald, contentious trust and dispute solicitor, Bolt Burden, and Brighton sociology and criminology graduate. In the episode, we delve into the world of contentious trust and disputes, specifically the remarkable difference between practicing trust rather than studying it, the impact COVID has had on the establishment of wills and trusts, and why celebrities are so obsessed in setting up trust funds for their pets. However, regardless of what you think about trusts, part of why I love this episode is for the powerfully candid discussion on the power of adversity in one's professional career development. After a troubling cancer diagnosis in the family during a uni degree, self-funding her GDL and LPC, and being furloughed and let go in a final seat of a training contract, Elle recounts the power of optimism and being bold when faced with adversity to get to where she is today, showing that sometimes, truly, the obstacle is the way. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Good morning, Anna. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. How are you doing? Yes, very well, thank you. How about you? Very good, thank you. So before we jump right into contentious trusts, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name's Elle McDonald. I am a solicitor who practices in the contentious trusts and probate world. And I work for a firm called Bolt Burden. And as I say, I'm a solicitor in that team. So what is contentious trust and disputes? In a nutshell, it's basically disputes that may arise after somebody has passed away. Usually it could be um, family members bringing claims against an estate if they've been unfortunately left out of a will, for instance. It could be issues involving the wording of a will, the wording or the way a trust has been set up during the, the deceased lifetime. As I say, you could be acting for a claimant, bringing a claim against an estate. You could be acting for a defendant, defending a claim. You could be acting for trustees. Um, so it's a very varied world um, and no two cases will ever be the same. So some contentious family disputes also mixed in with some finance. Now, first thing that I think every law student has on their minds, when we hear the word trust, we usually relate back to the horror stories of equity and trust from law school. Yeah. Does the theory back at uni bear any truth in reality and practice? I think 
thinking back to law school, so I didn't do a law degree, so I can't say what it's like for students that study equity and trust at uni because my experience would probably have been quite different. But the litigation side of equity and trust or the disputes is quite different. I think it isn't as scary or, you know, as as technical as you probably imagine it to be. But as I say, we deal with the dispute sides and we are helped by our non-contentious departments such as so in our team basically we have a team called WEP which is wealth and estate planning so they're the non-contentious practitioners who will be the people who set up the trust and things during a person's lifetime so anything that is beyond our scope or isn't within our area of expertise we would rely on our colleagues to assist us with understanding so although it is complicated and it is technical it isn't something that you're expected to know everything about and you can always go to somebody else in the department or even within the wider firm and ask them for assistance. So I wouldn't get too worried about it. I think that's a sigh of relief because everyone (laughs) I've talked to, when they talk about equity and trusts, they think about the nightmare of the three certainties, the beneficiary and all those different kind of legalistic jargon. Yeah. So contentious trust focuses much more on the sort of dispute resolution aspect of trust. Is that right? Yeah, I would say I wouldn't get too heavily um, obsessed with the idea that if you were to practice in contentious probate, that you would be only focusing on the contentious trust side, because a lot of the work that I do doesn't involve trust at all. Um, As I say, it's more to do with people like 1975 Act claims or Inheritance Act claims, people bring claims against an estate. It could be issues regarding the validity of the will if the deceased hadn't, you know, complied with the section nine of the wills act during the lifetime is the will valid. So although the trust section is an area that does come up, it isn't something that is my full caseload. So even if you aren't comfortable with the trust issues that may come up, you can always go to someone more senior or, you know, one who knows one of your colleagues in your team might actually love that area. So might be more <laughs> than happy to take on that file when it comes through. So I wouldn't get too worried about it. So yeah, don't, don't worry. Fantastic. So there is that kind of balance and variety in work. Yeah, absolutely. Now, when we talk about, say, instead of a, a, the typical law student, typical layman, mm. we think of wills and, and trusts based on how we see them in pop culture. And it's typically with the upper class and very financially well-off yeah. dealing with things like trust funds and the like and, and rich estates. Would you say that the clients that you service or that you deal with on a day-to-day basis are exclusively of that upper class elite status? Or No, no, absolutely not. So my caseload is very varied as uh, all the solicitors in my department's caseloads. You know, we we deal with with estates that are worth let's say under 100k and we're mindful that obviously the estate isn't worth that much so we don't want the person who's coming to us looking for advice to be incurring lots of legal fees because you're constantly worried about you know is the potential result that they're going to get is it going to be outweighed by the legal fees that they may have to pay but then on the other spectrum we you know get involved in cases that could be you know estates that are worth in the region of 12 million so it is very varied and your clients will come from very different backgrounds. Um, And actually, I think that's a really nice part about contentious probate because no two client is ever the same. And everyone has a story and everyone's families are obviously multifaceted and there's always history behind things that have happened. But 
I definitely wouldn't say that we only deal with, you know, the mega wealthy because that's not the case at all. Usually it's just normal people, normal everyday people who have legal concerns and have done the right thing by reaching out to a solicitor and seeking advice. And so typically, I know you focus on the contentious aspect of probate and and trust, but typically why do people set up trusts and probates? So I, I would personally say that And I could probably speak for most people who work in private client that it's always recommended that anybody should have a will just because you've got that certainty and that guarantee that, you know, hopefully what will happen to your estate after you die. So having a will is important for anyone who owns any assets, whether that be property, cars, I don't know, you know, paintings, whatever it could be, even just money in a bank account. I would say once you reach the age of 18, you should definitely consider having a will. And the same would apply for things such as power of attorney. You know, anyone at any time could lose capacity. And I'm sure you've probably seen the news recently where you've got the lady, Kate, who works on Good Morning Britain. Her husband obviously suffered with COVID. And she's been documenting the difficulties that she's been facing, even though they're married, she can't access certain things such as his bank account because she doesn't have a power of attorney. So they're all things that you should consider during your lifetime As for trust, that's slightly more complicated and it isn't an area that I would give advice on because, as I say, I I tend to deal with estates after the person, the testator, has now deceased. Um, But people set up trust for multiple reasons. It could be tax-saving purposes. Um, It could be that, let's say, you've got a parent who wants to leave a child a large sum of money but may not be happy with that child receiving that large sum of money due to their age or because they've struggled with their finances previously so they might want to put it in trust so that they know that somebody else would be responsible for you know keeping an eye on that money and making sure that the person that's going to benefit from it is you know acting appropriately so there's loads of different reasons as to why people do things um unfortunately i only become involved when there's an issue um so yeah my my job really is to help my client and even just just all the parties in general try and come to an amicable solution that's suitable for everybody. You know, your client is never going to unfortunately probably get the result that they want, the 100% result that they want. And the same applies to, you know, your opponent on the other side. But I think it applies with, you know, when you're you're following the, the CPR rules, you know, you need to be able to negotiate and engage in alternative dispute resolutions. So whether that be mediation or, you know, arbitration and things such as that, you know, going to court is the last hurdle that you want to get to. And, you know, people, especially solicitors are very mindful of that. And a lot of solicitors are criticised, you know, for getting a case all the way to court, especially because of the costs that are associated with that. You're you're looking at, you know, costs in the region of over £100,000 usually. So, yeah, there's multiple reasons why people do things in terms of tax planning and, you know, private client work. But my job is to try and settle the differences that occur, unfortunately, after the person who has tried to do tax planning and things like that during their lifetime just basically dies. So they call you in as the sort of fixer to, to, to resolve <laughs> these disputes and the problems that go awry when setting up these legal institutions and tools. Yeah. So, yeah, my job usually it will I will come into play when 
somebody has unfortunately passed away. So emotions are very high in a family. Um, it could be that somebody's passed away without even leaving a will. You know, that happens a lot. So the family are left in this turbulent state where they're thinking, well, you know, let's just say my husband hasn't left a will and or we're not married. You know, what are my legal rights? You know, or, or my partner had a wife and he never... Um, divorced her during her lifetime like what's her rights in respect of his estate you know and then we could have files where unfortunately a child has had a poor relationship with their parent during their lifetime but would never have expected to have been written out of their will and unfortunately these things happen so they may come to us for advice as to you know what's their position do you think that they have any legal rights to bring a claim and the same could apply for defending a claim we could be acting for the executors of a state who are, who are defending a claim brought by somebody who's claiming an interest in an estate. So my role is basically to become involved when there is an issue that arises after somebody sadly passes away. And so it seems that there's this mixture between, say, the emotionally charged nature mm. of the events in question and the dispute between the parties. Yeah but also then the facts and the legal criteria satisfied. Yeah. How do you as a solicitor manage to separate the two? Because it seems quite, it seems almost that the emotionally charged nature can then influence or almost muddle up the facts that are necessary to resolve these disputes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I think the main thing that I've always, you know, thought about and you know, through training and working with other solicitors in my team, we're very mindful that, you know, our clients are in a difficult place, especially, for instance, if you're bringing a claim, usually it could be that you're in financial difficulties at that time. So incurring further costs is always at the forefront of your mind. And you appreciate that the client's suffering at that moment. You know, they're, they're in a place of distress. They're, they're usually upset. Um, and, Emotions, as you say, are running really high. But at the same time, as you quite rightfully say, again, we have to be mindful of that. And I think managing your client from the get go is so important. You know, listening to them, writing down everything that they tell you in terms of the background and the facts, but then having that conversation with them and saying, okay, like, look, you know, let's use a 1975 Act claim, for example. You know, you want to bring a claim against the estate, but you know, there are certain criteria that needs to be satisfied. And it's more about, as you say, you know, having to comply with the law and being open and honest with your client and saying like, look, you know, whether you think they have a strong case or actually your case is quite weak. And although I might be happy to assist you with this, you've got to be mindful that you're going to incur legal costs, which can be extortionate in one sense you know especially for an everyday person who might not have a lot of money or may not be working due to covid and things like that and then you've got to you know be that person that says to him you know that there is no guarantee here i can only do my job and initially with any contentious private matter it's a fact-finding exercise it's you know, going through things such as the testator's will, looking at things such as, you know, were they influenced by somebody? You know, did they have capacity? So reviewing things such as their medical records to look for any signs or clues that might, you know, allude to the fact that they were suffering with dementia or hallucinations or anything like that that couldn't have an effect on their capacity and therefore could affect your client's claim. I think just being open and honest with your client and telling them like, 
it's a stage by stage process and there is no guarantee is so important. And I think as long as your client is aware of that and appreciates that, then your job becomes a lot easier. It almost sounds multifaceted, your role, because on the one hand, you're dealing with the law, but just now you were talking about also how you've got to manage your client, you know, that interpersonal communication with your client, be setting realistic expectations, consoling them. Yeah. But lastly, you've got to go through this treasure trove of data to yeah. almost rebuild the past and see, you know, where they have sound mind, what is it that they intended to do? So how do you you know, how do you manage all these tasks? It, it almost seems like you're, you're a generalist in, in one aspect, but in the other aspect, you're, you're a specialist because you handle disputes for probates and trusts. Yeah. I think, I think, again, you are right in the sense of there is a lot of general work that has to be done, such as review medical records, but where the specialist parts come in is, you know, what you're looking for, you know, you like, you look for certain clues, you pull out certain, you know, patterns and things. And only if you're a specialist in this area, will you be able to spot those? A lot of people who aren't specialists just wouldn't be able to pick up on those things that are crucial and could actually have a massive impact on your client's case. I think being organized is absolutely key, especially for a contentious trust and probate practitioner. You know, with 1975 Act claims, there's there's deadlines that need to be complied with. For instance, you're always checking to see when the grant of probate has been given to the executors because that's when your six-month timeline starts to tick, in which case you have six months to issue your claim. So it's constantly like putting diary reminders in your calendar to make sure that obviously you don't miss the deadline because God forbid you did that, you're you could be in serious trouble, especially you know, with not only with the court but with your client. So it's important that you're staying on top of things and managing your caseload. But at the same time, you're always conscious that your client's in the background and you need to keep them updated and you need to manage them. And things don't just happen overnight, especially with, you know, touching on medical records. They can take weeks, if not months, to come through. And it depends on the complexity of the deceased. You know, if they were ill for a lot of their life, their medical records is obviously going to be quite dense in comparison to somebody who maybe never went to hospital. So Every case is different. And as long as you're organized and you set for me personally, I always have like a to-do list next to me and I'm constantly making notes and things as I go along and just flagging things to be aware of. I think as long as you're doing those things then your job gets slightly easier, but as you say, you're constantly dipping in and out of different things and your mind's, you know, one minute you're acting for the claimant, one minute you're acting for the defendant. So you've got this hat on for all the different parties at all times. And I think that's really important as well, because even when you are acting for the claimant, for instance, you're always second guessing what the response will be to your letter. For instance, you know, if you're bringing a claim, you're going to be saying X, Y, Z, you know, this is my client's position. But at the same time, you're always conscious of, well, I have a feeling this is how the other side are going to reply. And I think as long as you're aware of those things and you don't go into things in the dark, again, it makes you a better practitioner, but it also allows you to manage your client better because you can say to your client, you know, like, here's the letter, you know, this is the draft that I prepared. Are you happy with it? Let's have a chat. And they might come back and say, yep, like it's great. Or I want to make this amend to it. Or could we add something like this in? And you'd say, yep, absolutely fine. And then before you send it, you'll say like, right, I'm going to send this, but 
you need to be aware that, you know, the likelihood is they could come back and say X. And as long as your client's aware of that, you know, when the other side do come back, it's not as if it's such a big shock to them. It's like, well, actually, Elle's been managing my case properly and she kind of knew this would happen. So your client feels like they're in safe hands and actually you feel like you have a better hold on the case as a whole, if that makes sense. Yeah. So essentially through the fact that you've done so many cases and although no one case is the same, you've been able to build experience in being able to anticipate what the opposition's move is for the fact that you've been in that other position. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's the thing, you know, especially with 1975 Act claims, for instance, you know, the arguments are, although no case is the same, obviously, and the facts are always different, the criteria that you're you're trying to satisfy will be the same. So, you know, the background and the reasons that you're, you know, stating why your client has a claim against the estate will be similar. Although the facts will be different, you're still trying to satisfy the legal criteria. So you know what the other side will probably come back and say, you know, in terms of you could be saying my client was maintained by the deceased during their lifetime. And you always anticipate that the other side could come back and say, well, actually, that isn't the case. You know, they wasn't being maintained during the lifetime or, you know, they were, but they stopped being maintained for like 10 years ago. So therefore, they try and weaken your claim, basically. And does the 1975 Act uh, stipulate a tight, say, deadline or timeline uh, to fill out a claim? So because you you talked about, you know, this idea of having uh, a to-do list and making sure you meet uh, certain requirements. Does the 1975 Act stipulate this or is this more of a, of a client stipulating things need to get done by this date? No. So the 1975 Act claims are quite strict. So as I touched on earlier, you've got six months to bring your claim basically um, from the issue of the grant of probate. So you're constantly checking the probate registry because the likelihood is, especially as a claimant, you know, the other side are aware that you have this timeline to bring this claim. And Unfortunately, then, you know, then they're never going to unless you can ask them and say, you know, please let me know once the the grant has been issued. But they're not bound by that. And a lot of solicitors won't let you know, which is unfortunate. But again, they're not acting for the claimant. You're acting for the claimant. So it's your responsibility. So for us, you know, it's a constant reminder in our diaries to check the probate registry once a week, see if the grant's been issued. And as soon as it has, put that six month deadline in our calendar. But we don't just put the six month deadline. You know, I, I might speak for my team here, but I know for us in particular, we have like a one month countdown. So we'll have like a five, five months until, you know, the deadline, four months. And then as it gets closer, we'll have like weekly updates that, that it can never get missed. And although there is this deadline that you have to bring a claim within six months, there has been cases where people have brought claims 20, 30 years out of time. And although they're not the norm, it is at the court's discretion. And depending on the circumstances, especially if like the claimant's in dire need and, you know, let's say the estate's worth quite a lot and it's valuable and it makes sense for them to bring a claim, the court has the discretion to allow you to proceed out of time. So although you have got this six month timeline to bring your claim and as a practitioner, you should absolutely comply with it. There is discretion as to, you know, bring in a claim out of the time. So I don't think clients should ever be put off if, you know, they come to you out of time. And so how have things been affected by the COVID pandemic? How has the COVID-19 affected contentious disputes uh, and trusts and probates? 
Um, so I've read online that there has been a spike in contentious trust claims. And I think that's probably because people obviously, unfortunately, finding themselves in financial difficulties. So when things such as that happen, people tend to engage in litigation. So there has been a rise in people bringing a contentious trust claim. I think in the future, you're probably more likely to have issues around, you know, the new temporary legislation that's been introduced in respect of remote witnessing of wills. So during COVID, a lot of people obviously sadly have passed away. So it's made a lot of other people consider making a will because they're worried that they might get COVID and pass away. But there's obviously implications in the sense of a lot of law firms, everyone is working from home. So we're not in the office and not so much now, I don't think, because we're we're hopefully getting to the end of you know lockdown but at the beginning especially a lot of people were trying to make wills and they're with the section nine of the wills act you have to have two witnesses that you know witness you execute your will and there was complications for certain people because let's say somebody lives alone they might not have another person that they could have witnessed their will and they can't just go and knock on their neighbor's door and say oh can I come in and sign my will can you witness it because you know as as you can imagine a neighbor's going to say oh hold on a second you're not in my social bubble like of course you can't (laughs) so I think you know, legislation has been temporarily amended to allow people to remotely witness wills. Um, And what that basically means is, you know, I could draft my will and go on Zoom and have two witnesses on there who could watch me sign my will. And then I can go to the post office or the post box and post my will to them. And again, it's not foolproof in one sense, because although it's a means to an end in the pandemic, there are there is clearly going to be issues in a few years time where people will say you know actually I did see that person on zoom but I didn't actually see them write their signature so does that mean that I witnessed it you know and there will probably be other things where people have posted their wills and they've got lost in the post because we all know you know the post service at the moment is affected because of covid you know and there's the sad things where you know, people might post their will and die in between, you know, executing their will and having a witness. So that would mean that that will won't be valid. Um, So I definitely think there will be a rise in, you know, people challenging remotely executed wills in the future. But I guess that's just an area to watch for contentious probate. I mean, it seems bizarre that in this day and age, with all this technological innovation and the prominence in e-signatures, you still need that wet signature. You know, yeah. it's a it's a Zoom call that you need to see somebody physically signing it by hand, and then you've got to post it so that the other person can sign it, and then they've got to post it back. Yeah. It just seems like a bunch of inefficiencies. And as you were picking up, just you know, a perfect problem question mm. for next year's law student cohort, just waiting to be written. Yeah. Absolutely. I think, again, even, you know, when it comes to wills, people will always be concerned about, you know, undue influence and things like that. You, It's not foolproof. You could have an elderly person who's executing their will, but standing behind the screen could be somebody basically, you know, telling them they have to do that. And unfortunately, you as a witness will never see that person. So, again, it's another area where people in the future who, you know, might come across the will after the testator has sadly passed away might say, well, actually, this wasn't what they ever said to me that they were going to do with their estate and actually I find this will really bizarre and they probably have more grounds to challenge it because as you say the circumstances aren't as black and white as they would be you know 
back in normal times when wills are executed, like in person with solicitors present and things such as that. But talking about kind of, you know, the contentious nature, even of the facts, uh, I remember in our previous conversation, one of the recent big cases uh, was Clitheroe v. Bond. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about that case? Sure. So Clitheroe and Bond was a really sad case, actually, and it's on appeal at the moment. So it hasn't been finalized, but... The facts was you had a mother who had three children during her lifetime, two daughters and a son. One of her daughters sadly became unwell. I believe she had cancer, which, as you can imagine, for any parent is, you know, something that you couldn't imagine having to go through. Sadly, her daughter you know, deteriorated and her other daughter decided that it would be in the daughter who was ill's best interest to turn off her life support. So she made that decision. And sadly, you know, the daughter who was suffering passed away. So mum was left with one daughter, one son. Of course, as you can imagine, losing a child must be extremely distressing for any parent. So mum started to grieve for the loss of her child. But at the same time, she started to suffer with delusions and that affected her relationship with her surviving daughter in particular. She basically formed these delusions that her do- the daughter that was su- that had survived, you know, was a spendthrift. She was a, I think it was quoted in, in court that she classed her as a shopaholic. So she was basically alluding to the fact that, you know, she couldn't manage her finances, that she was a spendthrift, i.e. If, if mum was to leave her any money, she would just, you know, spend it on unnecessary things. So mum executed a will during her lifetime that basically left her whole estate to her one son. As you can imagine, after mum passed away, the daughter was extremely upset to find out that mum had completely disinherited her from the estate. You know, the daughter was honest and said, you know, that it had been challenging, the relationship with mum in particular after her sister had passed away. But, you know, there was a lot of evidence to suggest that mum was, you know, in one sense, kind of, you know, lacked capacity in one sense in in the fact that you know the views that she held in relation to her daughter weren't true her daughter you know wasn't a spendthrift and her daughter wasn't all these things that mum had unfortunately began to believe were true so basically the daughter brought a claim on the basis that the will shouldn't be should be held to be invalid that mum didn't have capacity and you know she was suffering with issues that affected her capacity and she was successful So it was held that mum died without making a will. So therefore, mum's estate should be distributed as per the intestacy rules, which would mean that the sister and the son, the brother, would both inherit 50% of mum's estate. So that is obviously a success for the daughter in one sense. However, the son has, you know, been successful on appeal and the case is going to go to the court of appeal. So we're yet to find out you know, what the final binding result will be for that case. But it will definitely be an area to watch because it will focus on, you know, all the different things that are really important in terms of capacity cases, such as, you know, the Mental Capacity Act, you know, is that still relevant? You've got, you know, case law and it's just kind of, it will be for a judge to decide, you know, what's more relevant now going forwards. And actually it could have 
a binding effect on the way that contentious practitioners work in the future. So as I say, it's definitely something to watch. But again, it's just a, such a sad case of affairs. And, you know, it's just, yeah, it's it's not a nice result for anyone involved and especially for mum having to go through that during her lifetime. Definitely takes the meaning of sibling rivalry to, an, to another level. Yeah. Um, so this appeal, on what grounds is it being made? So is the Court of Appeal considering the criteria necessary to determine uh, testamentary capacity or kind of, you know, what type of mental incapacity will invalidate a will? What, what's the what's the legal drama here, so to speak? So the brother is basically bringing the appeal on the basis that actually, you know, mum's will is valid, that she did have capacity. And it will be for the judge to decide, you know, as I say, whether the Mental Capacity Act and case law um, has, which one's more relevant, I guess. And obviously I can't say what a judge is going to decide, but... (laughs) You know, it will be whatever they come out with in terms of, you know, any findings will have an impact on the way that we work going forward because we'll have to, you know, quote that in correspondence going forward. So I think it it will definitely try and clarify the issues in respect of capacity and what practitioners, you know, should be looking at when we're evaluating a case. And it will definitely have an impact on how we proceed going forwards. It definitely seems like the parties in this case are rolling the dice by going to court. Is this why, as contentious practitioners, you typically, I mean, apart from the cost saving, tend to go through mediation um, to achieve, say, a resolution that's more consensual? It's a win-win for both parties. Yeah, I don't, I don't think any litigation is ever, unfortunately, a win-win for anyone involved. Um, and it's more about, as you say, trying to find a compromise that's suitable for all parties involved. I think the thing that most clients worry about when it goes to court is, as you say, as a practitioner, the minute the court gets involved, it's technically out of your hands in that sense. You know, you have directions that you have to apply with. Um, you, you're basically at the court's mercy. So, and again, you know, the, the judgment at the end may not be in anyone's best interest and a lot of things will be written, um, and it will be in the public. And as I'm sure you see things get reported in newspapers, such as the Daily Mail and, you know, families don't want their, their personal news and especially, tragic things such as you know probate involving I don't know a parent or another family member they don't want that written in the daily mail for all their colleagues to read about and find out how much the estate was worth and things so I think as a practitioner we're always conscious of trying to settle outside of court because you've got the tax um the money saving issues as you say but also as a practitioner you can be highly penalized by a judge who could you know, get this file in front of them and say, you know, hold on a second, what on earth has happened here? How is this case that, you know, this this estate is worth, for instance, 250k? And I've looked at the cost budget for both parties and, you know, costs are already over a hundred thousand. You know, this this isn't in anyone's best interest. And why have you guys not been able to come to some form of, you know, agreement or compromise here? So I think for us, we're always conscious that we don't want to be penalized as practitioners. And, you know, by getting to court, technically, 
we're not acting in our client's best interests unless obviously the other party are being completely unreasonable, then it, you have no choice. But I think clients in particular uh, want to settle because the earlier they settle, the less legal costs they're going to incur. And second of all, they feel as though they have more control over the process. So it's not going to be a winner versus a loser in, in the case of, you know, at court where that's usually what happens at you know mediation you might be able to come to some form of compromise in terms of you know amending the estate by entering into like a deed of variation and there could be tax saving purposes for your clients or the clients could agree that one party is going to contribute x amount towards the other party's legal fees things like that so you know i feel like as a practitioner we have more control over it and i feel like our client feels like they have more of an input into it. So it's a win for us kind of thing. And so how many of these claims do you deal with at once? So how many are you juggling at once on average? I think that for me, it it's different because I'm relatively junior in my career. I'm not expected to have lots of different cases and lots of different clients at one time because I'm still finding my feet in the world of contentious probate. So at the moment I have... I think I have about five or six live cases, um, which isn't a lot. Um, You know, my previous firm, you know, there were some solicitors that had a caseload of exceeding 30 clients at any one time. Um, But I also assist on the other solicitors in my department's files as well. So any work that, you know, it would make more sense for me to do because my hourly rate's lower than a partner, for instance, I will help them and assist on their files. So I think my team are quite different because we all assist each other and we all work on each other's files, which is actually a great thing because especially as a junior solicitor, you're becoming involved in a lot of different areas of work that you may not necessarily have, you know, been involved with before, but you're also working together as a team. So you've always got someone else in the background who is there to assist you or there that you can just run past your ideas with and say, you know, this is what I'm thinking, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And just to get someone else's opinion on things that, you know, as a solicitor, it's nice that, for instance, your team member will be like, yeah, that's exactly what I would do. Or they could be like, well, actually, I would I maybe want to consider this. And I think it's good to just know that you're part of a good supportive team because, you know, as a solicitor, you're always, and especially for me being a junior solicitor, I'm always worried, you know, God, am I being negligent or have I missed something? Things like that that always cross your mind. And I think as long as you've got like a great team and great supervisors around you, you know that, you know, you're in safe hands as a practitioner, but also your client is also in safe hands. So it's an all hands on deck team dynamic, the idea that you work cooperatively in teams with each of these cases yeah absolutely yeah so I think my my firm and my department are probably quite unique in that sense that we all work together on you know the files are in one person's name but clients often know about everyone in the team so if somebody else emails them it's not like oh who are you like I've not come across you so you know our clients get a better service as well because someone's always available and always around so if someone's on annual leave they haven't got that fear of well hold on if Elle's on annual leave for a whole week you know what's going to happen to my file because they know somebody else is there in the background keeping an eye on any correspondence that might come in and will update the client so again the client's getting a better service and you know as practitioners we're helping each other out and keeping stress levels down and assisting you know if one of us for instance has a quiet day we're always happy to say to the others you know oh, hi guys I've got a bit of a quiet day is there anything you need help with because 
although one of us could be really you know quiet on that day someone else could be swamped so it is definitely a whole like team effort approach which definitely works for us and apart from the camaraderie you know benefit you know relationship building in the team what's it like changing hats you know jumping into different cases and and having to take on okay well now i'm uh going for the claimant now i'm you know acting upon the defendant this is a factual matrix in this case that's a factual matrix in that case that that i mean for me i would i would get like a mental block just trying to adapt myself into each of these situations but i'm guessing for you now juggling six live cases at a time that must be quite natural already like seamlessly integrate into one case and another yeah, I think I think unless you're you're working in contentious probate, it probably from an outsider's perspective, you probably think, God, like how do you do that? And I remember as a trainee when I worked with solicitors who had a big caseload and I could see they were like constantly dipping into one thing and dipping into another. And I used to think, how do they do it? But I think once you become a solicitor and you have your own caseload and it becomes a lot easier. You know your files well. You know where they're at. I think it's it's probably more difficult as an outsider because you don't know the file that well. You don't know the client. You don't know where the file's at. Um, and I think, it, again, it all boils down to being organized. As long as the fee earner has, you know, attendance notes and they, they do case reviews and they have all of that saved, you know, it's a lot easier to go into a file and click on those and say, okay, well, you know, Elle's done this and Elle's done that. Right, okay, so the next step is this. Elle's just waiting for that so it's a lot easier to dip into it but I think just yeah just keeping your eye on things and even when you're not actively playing a role for me in particular when I've got a bit of downtime I'll always look at you know the other solicitors in my department their files and have a look at what's going on you know some might say that's quite nosy but (laughs) (laughs) it's more from like a training perspective and I know that they would never you know mind me looking at their files and actually they encourage me to look at their files but you know just for me for my own like nosiness I'm like oh I wonder what's going on in that file oh god okay that's happened now so you know it's a lot easier when you're in practice to manage what's going on. Um, But I would say, you know, if you ever do feel overwhelmed, you should definitely speak out to somebody in your team. Cause I know my, the the two partners in my team, Alexa and Natasha are always fantastic at making sure that I'm okay, making sure I'm not overworked, that I haven't got too much to do, you know, and I consciously use my um, outlook calendar and diarize things I'm doing throughout the day because one, it helps me manage my time, but it also helps my team see what I'm doing. Um, so yeah. And so you talked about how kind of you know your team and, and your firm are, are quite unique. And that brings up about a roll on Friday article which called Bolt Burden the pink armchair firm. And what why is it called that? What's the story behind that? <laughs> Uh, so I can't tell you what the story is behind that because I've only been at Bolt Burden for six months. Um, so I wasn't there when that article was released, but I do know the article that you're referring to. Um, Bolt Burden is a fantastic law firm. Uh, it was always a law firm that was on my radar and I knew about them. And I did always associate the pink chair with the firm and pink is my favorite color. So, you know, that was always a win-win for me. But I think the thing that always drew me to Bolt Burden was that they were, you know, a progressive law firm. They, their idea is that, you know, we have professional lawyers who are fantastic in their, in their fields. You know, we win awards and, you know, we are recognized highly for the areas of work that we do. But at the same time, we are people 
and we have lives. And although we're solicitors on one side, we we have a personality and we like to have fun. And I think, you know, that was probably the idea behind the pink chair and show it like allowing their solicitors in particular to, to, to show themselves and to say, you know, like, look, I am, I am still a mum, for instance, or, you know, I like to run marathons on the weekend. It's showing that we aren't just suited and booted and just lawyers and you can't have an informal chat with us because actually you can, you know, and I think being that way means that you're you're providing a better service to your clients and especially in contentious probate, you, you're always having to get to the nitty gritty of families and finding out what's happened. And if clients don't feel comfortable, they're never going to truly open up to you. And I think with contentious probate, you need to know about everything because if your client's not opening up to you, it doesn't mean that the opponent on the other side isn't opening up to their solicitor. So you could be taking instructions from your client and then be sending correspondence and then getting correspondence back saying, well, hold on, did you know about this? And then you're sat there thinking, oh God, well, my client hadn't told me about that. And I think it all just boils down to just being you. And I think that's why I was drawn to the firm because I knew that I could just be an individual I could showcase my personality I could you know I could go to work and learn a lot because I'm working with fantastic solicitors but at the same time on a Friday night I can still go out and socialize with my peers and see them as my friends rather than my colleagues and I think that is how the firm's you know culture is and it's very different to other firms and yeah it's it's fantastic and that brings up a, a nice contrast, a nice refreshing contrast to typically, you know, what public perception of a law firm is like. You know, law firms are conservative. They're very much, you know, impersonal, very much kind of professional, just a, a suit there, you know, almost almost like a tool that clients use to do whatever you want. Yeah. How have you noticed, and I know you've only been at Boat Burden for six months, but in your interactions with clients, how have you seen clients receive this more kind of personable approach? I I think, as I say, I can't speak for the firm as a whole because I only work in one department and I know how my department in particular works. But I think clients value that, you know, you are a person and that they can relate to you and you aren't this robot. And I think a lot of people associate with a solicitor, like, you know, they're very intelligent, but they they don't really understand the real world or, you know, you can't relate to them or they don't understand your issues. And actually, I think, you know, by being down to earth and especially with working from home, I've had scenarios where I have a dog and he might start barking in the background and they're not things that you would associate with a solicitor because as you say, it's very pers- like professional and, you know, suited and booted and everyone has to use all this legal jargon all the time. But in actual fact, you know, when I started working at Bolt Burden, I would use legal jargon and you know my supervisor would say don't put that put like a normal word and for me that was really like <laughs> whoa but it doesn't sound professional enough but actually their take on it was actually you need to write it so that a client understands you you know you, you need to write it for instance I always bear in my mind when I'm like writing a, an email to a client where I'm advising them or something I write it as though I'm writing it to my mum who isn't a solicitor and she obviously has no idea about contentious probate so I write it away and I I read it back and I think would my mum understand this if I was to send this to her and if the answer is no that's my cue to go and rewrite it if the answer is yeah she probably will understand she might have some questions then fine but the ideal for me is to 
to liaise with my clients in a way that they feel like not that I'm their friend, but they feel as though they can open up to me and be honest with me and they can talk to me about how they're feeling. Because as I say, contentious probate, it's a whirlwind and you're going to have ups and you're going to have downs. And I, I would hate that my clients would feel as though they couldn't reach out to me if they were, if they were suffering. But at the same time, I, you know, I am a professional and, you know, I want to be recognized for being a professional. So it's just about finding that balance. And I think that applies to all the solicitors across all the firms. You know, there isn't this closed door policy where, you know, at certain firms, it's like, oh God, I couldn't approach them because they're a partner. Like, gosh, you know, that isn't how Bolt Burden works at all. You know, everyone is treated equally and respected equally. And it's refreshing. And that applies to our support team that help us, you know, manage, you know, calls that come in or posts that comes into, you know, our, our managing partner at the firm, you know, everyone is treated with respect and equally. And I think it just works. And I think I, I liked how you distinguish this idea about putting in your personality in your work mm-hmm. isn't necessarily kind of, you know, being informal and being too friendly, but rather it's about fostering that sense of trust, getting your client to feel comfortable in revealing all these details, especially when you're working in contentious uh, trust and probates, which as we talked just earlier, is a very kind of emotionally charged dispute and isn't something people are very comfortable in. I can imagine your clients aren't really excited to see you. (laughs) Um, So setting up that environment where they feel comfortable kind of telling you all about this kind of, you know, what must be a traumatic or at least difficult past to share um, is essential. Absolutely. And I think, as you say, the better relationship you can have with your client, the more successful you're likely to be for them. And I don't mean with the result that may happen at the end of their file, but, you know, even just being able to engage in conversation with them, asking them how their weekend was or asking them, you know, how their grandchildren is, they, they really do appreciate that. And actually I think if you can get them on side in that, in that respect, it makes your job easier because you won't, you won't feel like things are uncomfortable to talk about. You can just pick up the phone and you can say, you know, I just need to speak to you about this or I'm drafting this and I just need to clarify this. And you know that they're going to be open and honest with you and they're not going to feel judged. And I think a lot of the time, especially with our clients, they're embarrassed. They've come to you. As you say, they're not looking forward to speaking to you. They're not looking forward to incurring legal fees that they don't feel justified in the sense of, you know, hold on a second, I've been left out of a will. Why am I going to have to pay thousands of pounds and I might not even be successful? But they understand why you're there. And I think as long as your client knows that you're acting in their best interests and that you're doing all that you can, there is never a guarantee with litigation. But as long as you're doing the best you can do for them and you're helping them as much as you can, then I think clients, regardless of the outcome, will be grateful for the service that they've received from you. And so now going from, so we talked about, you know, this idea of you know, bringing in your personality into the profession in relation to client correspondence. Yeah. But I also want to talk about now bringing in your personality, especially with the firm that you work at, um, mm. and especially how Bolt Burden is unique and that it embraces kind of your personality and everyone's treated equally. And I think that's a very yeah. important issue. I mean, only this week, I don't know if you saw, there was an article on the FT about uh, Goldman Sachs and the juniors mm. there that were complaining about working say 95 hour weeks yeah. even when yeah. working from home and just being subject to all different types of kind of you know verbal abuse or micromanagement 
And it's, I, I think that brings up uh, a good spotlight against this. I don't know if it's obsession, but at least say this intimidation, the, the, the idea that people feel like they need to go to the top firms or the top firms yeah. to get the top salary. And that's their definition of success or satisfaction or happiness. In contrast with Bolt Burden, it sounds that it might not be, say, the flashiest or the, the biggest law firm out there, but at least you have that tight-knit community, which very much kind of embraces your personality and treats you as an equal. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind shedding a light more on how that dynamic you know, uh, affects kind of morale, but also just overall job satisfaction. Absolutely. I think, as you say, the especially with law and with any, you know, banking and any area that's, you know, associated with professionals, there's there's always been this culture, I would say, where, you know, you're a junior, you're expected to be the last person in the office and you're expected to be the first person there and you're expected to make the tea and do everything that you can possibly do. And even then that's not enough. And you're you know, you have to accept the criticism and you have to accept being shouted out by someone who's your superior, you know. And even when I was training, I wasn't subjected to that type of treatment, I must say. But I do know peers and friends who did train at firms that were like that. And I would be leaving the office at six o'clock and at 10 o'clock, they're only leaving the office. And I would say, you know, like, what are you doing? And it's like, oh, well, I had to finish this because it has to be done by tomorrow or I'll get in trouble. And it was a constant like friends living on fear and I used to say to him gosh like it must be really difficult working like for a firm like that and as you rightfully say they'll be like yeah but I work at this firm as if that justified that they were downgrading themselves as people and for me I've always had a lot of self-respect for myself that's not to say that I haven't suffered with, you know, self-doubting or self-esteem issues or waking up some days and thinking, what on earth am I doing? Like, why did I choose to go down this route? I could have been doing anything by now, you know, and I'm massively self-critical and I always expect a lot from myself. And I think that's just part and parcel of working in law. I think that's a quality that most of us share. But what I would say is, Job satisfaction for everyone will be very different and success for everyone will also be very different. But for me, it was important to find a law firm that one accepted me for who I was. So they embraced that, you know, I don't look like, I wouldn't say I don't look like the typical solicitor. When I tell people I'm a solicitor, they're like, oh, wow, really? You know, and I think, well, yeah, yeah, I am actually, um, you know, because I'm I'm this small, blonde, petite person who, who had likes to be sarcastic and I like to have fun with my friends and walk my dog and ride my bike and things like that, that people just don't associate with a solicitor. And I think finding a firm such as Bolt Burden who embraces that and actually even an interview, it was very much like, okay, let's touch upon, you know, the contentious probate role and what you can bring to the team and your experience. But also let's now find out about you as a person. Like, what would you say is your biggest weakness in life? You know, what's what's a challenging situation you've overcome? But then also focusing on the positive, such as, you know, like, what do you actually like about yourself and what do you like to do outside of work? And 
that was really important to me because as much as I want to be a successful solicitor and actually as a junior solicitor, I am successful in what I've been doing so far and the work that I'm producing and the things that I'm engaging in. Success for me is also about, you know, having a private life and being successful in that, i.e., you know, nurturing your friendships and as I say, walking your dog and just things that, that you get enjoyment out that aren't associated with work. And my supervisors in particular are amazing at, you know, encouraging me to log off at reasonable times. And if I'm replying to emails at, you know, let's say eight o'clock at night, because I might have my work phone next to me, for instance, I will always get an email straight away back from Natasha, who's our team leader and my boss to say, what are you doing still working? You know, and that to me was that was new because even at my old firm, you know, I could be logging in on a Saturday and people wouldn't say anything, you know, they probably didn't expect me to, but they would never be like, oh, you really shouldn't be working on a Saturday. They're just thinking, well, she's progressing the file. Great. You know, whereas here it's very much like, you know, if you need to take a day off because you're overworked or you've woken up and you've got a headache, then that's fine. Like, obviously, you're not going to do that in the middle of a trial or if you've got like a court bundle that needs to go. But there's a lot of trust and, as I say, a lot of respect. And that just makes the firm tick, I think. And it makes you work better. We're more likely to be successful. And it means that you're likely to be happier. And I think at Bolt Burden, everyone's conscious about mental health and about people's happiness and well-being. And that to me is really important. And that's why I find the firm just fits for me. That's perfectly put. And I think that idea of work, but also life and and having one that effectively balances both. And, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. You want to be happy, both, you know, successful in your career, but also enjoy your personal life. It's not like you've got to give up your personal life and any sense of personal identity in order to be successful in the corporate world. So it is great to see that there are organizations like Bolt Burden that do value you as a person because they realize that it's you as a solicitor, you as a person that are going to bring value to the company and are bringing value to clients. You're not just a legal machine that's just been programmed to output as many documents or legal analyses as possible. Exactly. And it is, it's more than that. Like Bold Burden, it's, it's a family culture. We, you know, as much as we do a lot of work, of course we do. And we, we deal with a lot of high profile cases and a lot of high profile clients. We are respected as a firm. And as I say, we win awards such as last year, you know, we won Court of Protection Team of the Year. You know, we are highly recognized for what we do, but at the same time, there isn't this cutthroat culture that people are out to get one another or, oh, my billing's better than your billing this month. Like it isn't like that at all. It's very much like, you know, are you okay? And then someone will be like, yeah, I'm fine. No, but are you really okay? Like, do you want to just have like a call over teams? Like, should we arrange a cup of tea? Like people will always stop what they're doing, even if they're swamped and in the middle of something, if they think that you're struggling or something's bothering you, they will take the time out of their day, even if that means that they work slightly longer at the end of the day, just to make sure that you are okay. And I don't think many firms offer that. And I think if you're lucky enough to work for a firm like Bolt Burden, you should hold on to that. And so now let's start your your, your journey into law. So first off, you, you talked about how you, you originally didn't start out, you know, doing a, a degree in law. What made you transition into law? 
Um, so I always knew from a young age, so my father's a solicitor, so I always knew from a young age that I was intrigued by law. Um, and I think at school, I excelled in academic subjects such as history and English and things like that, rather than the science and the math. So I always knew that something to do with, you know, reading and writing would be an area that I'd wanted to go into. And as I got older, I knew that I wanted to do law and I was just put off by studying at, at university. I'd heard things such as, you know, oh, doing law at uni is so boring or it, it overtakes your life or you're not going to have a good time and things like that. And, you know, I did start researching it and I came across another degree. So I really enjoyed sociology at school and I did it for GCSE and I did it for A-level and I basically came to the decision that I was going to do a sociology degree. So I began basically researching universities, going to open days. And I came across Brighton, who basically were offering a sociology and criminology degree. And the degree was taught by professors who were writing books and stuff and who were really like at the top of their game. And it really appealed to me. So I basically decided to do that degree, but I always knew at the back of my mind that I would do the GDL. So I think for me, it was more, you know, I'm going to have my three years of fun and then I'll knuckle down and do my law degree. And then hopefully, you know, I'll be fine. And I think that's one of the beauties of the English system is the fact that they have something like the GDL. I mean, I know a lot of other countries don't offer that idea of a one-year conversion course, and it's much more difficult. And so people feel like they've got to, you know, oh, law gets you a job, Australia, uni, whereas kind of, you know, sociology doesn't. I've got to get into law. But here, you know, you've got that system where you can say, well, actually at university, I want to learn more about sociology and criminology. And if it turns out that's not something that I want to make it a career, well, you know, I've got these conversion courses that facilitate my transition. So it never feels like I'm giving up. No. And I think also most people who go to university, unless they have gap years or they're, you know, students who go a lot later in life for whatever reason most people go to university at 18 years old and you're very young at 18 you know I'm 27 soon so god that's like nine years ago I can only imagine <laughs> what I was like at 18 and actually as we all know and appreciate law is demanding and difficult and even like we were speaking about earlier law students think equity and trust like what are you expected to know about equity and trust at 18 because you probably as you say don't have an, any idea what what a trust is. I know that I wouldn't have at 18. Um, so I think actually the beauty of ha- being able to do a conversion is you're that much more mature. You've already done a degree. So you've already obtained, especially if it's like an academic degree, you know how to write essays, you know how to read literature, you know, and it kind of prepares you for the GDL. The GDL is difficult, as I'm sure anyone listening who have done the GDL can resonate with, you know, but you have to be in a certain mindset to be able to do the GDL. Um, and actually having done an undergraduate degree and the conversion into law, I personally think that I am a better solicitor because I have more skills and different skills than I would just get from having just a straight law degree, I think. Do you feel that you've been able to bring in kind of elements apart from, say, essay writing, but um, insights from your time studying sociology and criminology into your work as a solicitor? Yeah, I think it doesn't, the the course didn't necessarily apply to my work now, but I think the course in general definitely shapes you as a person. Like 
for instance, in sociology, like understanding theorists such as feminism, which is so important now for, you know, people, it's, it's at the forefront of everything, you know, having studied that and done a dissertation for me, I done a dissertation on the pressures that men find aging in basically Western society, just things like that makes you understand how people tick and, you know, when clients now come to me, it's it makes me have a better interpersonal relationship with them. And I guess it's probably taught me how to engage. You know, when I was younger, I was very shy and and now I'm I'm definitely not shy at all. Uh, maybe that again comes with age. But as I say, it it broadened my narrative and it broadened my horizons in that sense. And, you know, it helped me, it molded me into the person that I became at 21 years old before I did the GDL. And then having done the GDL, I, you know, obviously if you can get through the GDL, you can probably get through anything. So once I completed (laughs) that, I just knew that I would be fine um, after getting through that nine months, which were probably the worst nine months in terms of pressure, but also the best nine months because I met some fantastic people and we all just you know knuckled down and got through it together and we all did really really well um but yeah having done an undergraduate definitely prepared me for the GDL 100% and one of the things I also wanted to talk about was you know you doing the GDL and the LPC now typically a lot of people who do the GDL and LPC go in already being sponsored by a firm, specifically their training contract provider. But what I found interesting in our conversations is that you went into both the GDL and the LPC self-funded. And I can only imagine that that must bring in a lot of pressure on its own, apart from already kind of the strenuous conditions of learning all the GDL kind of LLB modules in nine months. And on top of that, then the LPC, but also not having that job security afterwards. What was, what was that like? I think when you look back on it, you probably do think, gosh, at the time it must've been really stressful for you and you must've been panicking a lot. For me, my experience was probably slightly different. So in the second year of my university, excuse me, my mum got cancer. Um, She suffered from breast cancer and it was really, really serious. Um, Thankfully, I can say that she's still here today and she's flourishing and she's fine, thank God. Um, But that really, really basically, you know, made me grow up in the space of, you know, a year. I went from being this wild party animal in Brighton University at 18 to, oh my God, my mum might die at 19. So I think from then I just kind of knuckled down. So the rest of my undergraduate wasn't as fun and as outgoing as I would have expected, especially living somewhere like Brighton. But my mum always knew I wanted to be a solicitor. So thankfully it was my mum that funded my GDL, my LPC. And I think for her, it probably sounds really sad, but I think she always knew that that was my dream. And my dreams have always been her dreams. And when I finished my undergraduate, and as you say, I wasn't funded and I hadn't got a training contract. I hadn't even applied for any training contracts at uni because as I say, it wasn't at the top of my priorities at that time. You know, Sadly, if my mum had passed away, I might not be here as a solicitor now. I could have taken a completely different track because I probably wouldn't have been in the right mindset to have done the GDL then. So I am a massive believer that everything happens for a reason. And as I say, I finished my undergraduate and I knew I wanted to do the GDL. And I think at the time it was like £17,000 and you couldn't take a loan out for the GDL at the time. What I mean is you couldn't get like a student loan for the GDL. So you could either go to the bank and get a nice massive loan with some massive interest. 
or in my case, and I guess this will not apply to a lot of people. And I appreciate what a privileged position I was in. My mum had some money set aside. And I think she was very much of the idea of, you know, I might not be here for very long. And, you know, if this money is going to go to good use, i.e. it's going to, you know, help you with your studies, then this money can be used for that. So I was, I think throughout my GDL, it was more like I had an internal pressure to succeed for my mum rather than for myself. And I guess that's why I didn't really focus on the fact that I didn't have a training contract or, you know, I wasn't being sponsored because if anything, I was, I had more pressure because I was like, God, this is a lot of money that my mum's given me. And, you know, what happens, you know, if I foul or, or, you know, as you said, I don't get a job, then she's all these savings that she has, like I've just wasted. So I think it was more of an internal pressure in that sense, um, which actually kind of deflected away from, other students in my class who had training contracts at the likes of Alan and Overy and Clifford Chance and were from completely different worlds to me. I think I just went in with a different mindset. And for me, it was just like, I just need to get through this course and I need to do really well. And then what happens next year or next month, I'll deal with it when it happens. First off, I'm grateful that everything is uh, is all right with your mom. Um, you. But I can only imagine you know, what being in that situation. And it's it's impressive how sometimes kind of, you know, the greatest adversities end up preparing you and building so much strength for you. Absolutely. And I think you're you're spot on. I think by going through that, as I say, it's it's traumatizing, but you grow up very quickly. And again, it all it shapes you as a person and it still shapes me to this day. It makes you grateful for where you've come from, who you have in your life, you know, what the world has to offer you. But it also opens your eyes to the fact that, you know, none of us are indestructible. And at any time, anything can happen to anyone that you love. And that all boils down again to your work-life balance. You know, you can be the best solicitor ever, i.e. working seven days a week, but that doesn't mean that you're spending enough time with your family and your family are getting older every day and you know they're not always going to be there and unfortunately your job probably always will be there or or a job of doing something but you know it's just learning to appreciate the small things in life and I think once you do and maybe it comes with age and I sound really (laughs) old now even though I'm not old Um, I think, yeah, as long as you have your priorities straight and, you know, you look after yourself and the things that are important to you, then you will be a success in whatever you end up doing. Very well put. And continuing, I mean, unfortunately, your adversity doesn't end here from our previous conversation because, you know, you found a training contract provider, you know, you started your training contract. Yeah. And then while completing your training contract, pandemic hits, not only kind of working from home, you put on furlough. And then, you know, you're not given a job upon qualification. No. What's that like? Again, kind of, that's a, that feels like a double whammy here, you know? So, yeah, you're, you're completely right. As you say, I have, yeah, have definitely dealt with some other issues in respect of, you know, things haven't been smooth sailing. I, as you say, I got a training contract and I was a paralegal for a year at the firm. That was absolutely fine. And then I started my training contract and again, fine up until my final seat, in which case that came about in March, 2020, just as the pandemic hit, I went into my final seat, which was a family seat. And within three weeks, basically, they they basically said, you know, we're putting all of our trainees and there was a lot of us, I think, about 25 or so. We're basically putting you all on furlough. So 
I remember thinking at that time, like, God, like I'm in my final seat. I've just been furloughed. And the firm were very much like, don't worry, it's only going to be like a short term thing. Like, we'll get you back soon. So I think at first I was very much just like, in, <laughs> I was just in one sense, I think everyone was so worried about COVID that I was like, thank God that I'm not having to go into an office. And because I was under the impression that it would only be like a month or whatever, I thought, oh, it's just like an extended holiday. Great. You know, <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what I want. Um, but as you say, it, it went on and it went on. And during that time, my firm was taken over by another firm. So as Again, there was, you know, another bump in the road. Um, and that's when we got basically told that this was toward, I think it was about August time last year. No, it might have been July. We was basically told, you know, we're going to keep you on furlough until your training contract ends, which I think was the 3rd of September was the day I qualified, 2020. Um, and then, as you say, when your contract ends, that's your, your contract with the firm done. And I remember receiving that news and I was always of the idea that I liked the idea of moving firms when I qualified so it wasn't the fact that I knew that I wasn't going to get a job at my current firm I trained at but it was more just I thought oh my god like we're in a pandemic people are making you know redundancies left right and center I'm just about to qualify as a solicitor I want to qualify into contentious trust and probate it's a niche area of law anyway so there isn't going to be you know a bustling job market what on earth am I going to do but again as I say things (laughs) things happen for a reason and um Bolt Burden randomly put up a job vacancy and they're a firm that are based about 20 minutes away from my house. So I know them very well. I know where they are. And they put up a contentious probate job vacancy. And when I I I saw it and I thought, oh my God, like this is amazing. And then I clicked on it and then I thought, oh, okay. And they were advertising for someone three to four years PQE, which as you can imagine when you're still a trainee. A bit of of (laughs) stretch, yeah. Yeah, you don't fit the criteria. So I remember thinking, oh, well, you know, they're never going to consider me. So, and Bolt Burden, as I say, although they're not a city firm, they are a highly recognized firm and the talent that they take on is good. And at that time, my self-esteem wasn't great. I'd been on furlough for nearly six months. I was at the end of my training contract and I thought, I was beginning to feel like, what do I actually have to offer? Am I good enough? Like, you know, I'm going to be this this newly qualified. I'm basically going to be like a baby that needs their hand held. And, you know, who on earth is going to want me is what I was feeling. But I managed, again, to pluck up the courage, mainly because my mum was pushing me, bless her, to actually just approach them. So I sent them an email. And I, I from memory, I said something along the lines of, you know, I've seen that you've, you're advertising this vacancy. And, you know, I know I don't obviously satisfy the requirements, but here's my CV. Like I've got experience in contentious probate and I had quite a fair bit of experience. You know, please, can you keep my CV on record? And if something, you know, in the future were to become available that I would like suit the requirements, please let me know. And they came back to me and basically it's like, we want to invite you for interview. And I just thought, oh my God. I remember I got my phone in my hand. (laughs) So embarrassing. And I started running around my house, like literally like, ah. And my mum was like, what? Like, what's happened? Are you okay? And I was just like, I've got an interview. And she obviously didn't realise it was with Bolt Burden. And she was like, with who? Like, who have you been applying to? And I was like, with Bolt Burden. And she was like, oh, okay, amazing. So, yeah, so long story short, I had an interview and an exam 
with Bolt Burden, which was terrifying, especially because, as I say, I'd been out of the game for a little while, so I was a bit rusty at this point. Um, so I had to sit an hour exam um, over Zoom because obviously we couldn't meet in person. The exam went well, and then I had an interview with the two partners of my team who I've previously mentioned, Natasha and Alexa, who are the nicest people that you could possibly come across. But as I say on interview, you don't know people and people obviously have their game face on and are quite serious. And I remember thinking, God, I don't think that they liked me after that. Although they didn't obviously say anything horrible to me and they wasn't horrible to me in the slightest. I think I was just paranoid. I was thinking, oh God, I'm not going to fit or maybe I'm not smart enough. Or, you know, there's, they're these amazing women that know so much and have so much to offer yet. You know, here I am, this newly qualified person nearly um, has nothing to offer. So you get into your head a little bit. But the good thing is um, Bolt Burden don't wait around in terms of recruitment. Um, so they're not the type of firm that leaves you hanging for a week to find out whether you've been successful. So I remember that afternoon they said, you know, they were really happy with the inter- how the interview went and they were really impressed by the exam and they wanted to invite me for a second interview. So I had a second interview and that was with our managing partner and the head um, partner in another team. And again, that was just like an, more so like an informal chat to find out about me as a person and whether I would fit the firm. Because as I say, the firm culture is so important. So they want to ensure that the people that they hire aren't going to change that culture and they're actually going to fit. So I, as I say, I had the interview and it went really well. Despite technical glitches, my internet was cutting out and all God things was happening, <laughs> yeah. as you can imagine. Just- just what you want to happen in honestly <laughs> I think it kept coming up like your internet connection is unstable and I remember thinking I don't know what's more unstable me or the internet connection right now <laughs> um but yeah again that went really well and then I was successful and got offered the job and then I qualified on 3rd of September with 2020 which I think was a Friday and on the Friday I got a call to say oh L, you've qualified today haven't you and I was like yep and because of the pandemic and everything, you get issued your um, practicing certificate online. So it's all done like instantly now. Whereas back in the day, I think you had to wait in for the post and it took weeks, I've heard. Um, so, yeah, I basically paid for my um, admission certificate, I think it was. And I got that straight away. And then I started on the Monday with Bolt Verdon. And so the 7th of September, I think that was. And I've been with them ever since. Wow. That's, it's crazy. I mean, you know, going from March, 2020, and and I think a lot of people relate as to at the beginning of this pandemic, everyone thought, well, you know, great, staying safe, staying at home. This is going to be a vacation. Time to catch up on all the Netflix that I've been putting (laughs) off or haven't been able to enjoy just some me time. And then the longer it went on for the more doom and gloom it got and the worse it got. And then on top of that, kind of, you know, with the economic uh, downturn and, you know, the job insecurity and all the stress, it's just, yeah, it, it's it's enough to make anyone kind of, you know, very, very scared or very unsure about themselves. But then the fact that you kind of took that step to apply to Build Burden or to even send them an email, you know, on a job posting, which was four years over kind of, you know, more qualification than you had to offer. Have you ever thought about what if you didn't send that email? Where would you be today? Do you know what? I? It doesn't really cross my mind because, as I say, I am very much one of those people who everything happens for a reason and I always try and remain optimistic. So 
I know it's not worth thinking about, but sometimes I do think, okay, well, if that door was closed, another door would open and it might not have opened in September and it might only be opening now. But again, I've always been, you know, like I am intelligent and I do have a lot to offer. And when an opportunity comes along, it will come along. And I was obviously very lucky in that sense. And some people might say, you know, everything happens for a reason. That job was meant for you. And I would like to think that as well. But if the opportunity at Bolt Burden didn't arise, I could only just be, you know, grateful that my health was fine and grateful that my family were doing okay. And when an opportunity presented itself, whether that be back in September last year, now, or even in six months from now, then I would jump on that. So I always remain optimistic regardless, but obviously I'm grateful that the opportunity presented itself because I couldn't imagine being anywhere else now. Yeah. I mean, crazy how how things turned out almost that you ended up going for a firm in in which you are happier because, you know, they do kind of accept you for your personality and they really do kind of push you and motivate you in this team dynamic. Yeah, absolutely. And as I say, they, I work in a full female team. Um, You know, everyone is so uplifting and so proud of each other. When someone does something well, it's, it's always like, that's amazing. I was so, so happy. Even when I was mentioning doing this podcast with you, it was like, this is fantastic, you know, like congratulations. So it is such a nice environment. And I think it takes time to get used to. There's no like undercover people looking to catch you out or, you know, say to you, you know, that bit of work that you just produced, it was absolutely rubbish. Although you might be thinking that in your mind, you know, I know my supervisors, whenever they check my work, they're always so nice to me about it. And although they might make amendments to it, they're always very much like, this is a really good, you know, go, let's have a chat about it. And they're always really encouraging. And they're they're very much conscious of the fact that, especially now for me, you know, I am a junior solicitor and you shouldn't be trying to run before you can walk. And, you know, you should accept that you've got a lot to learn, but at the same time, accept that you're great at your job and what you're producing is fantastic. So you should be proud of yourself. And I think you don't really get that at some firms and it's like gold dust when you do get it. So you should hold on to it. And for me, it suits me perfectly. Oh, it's fantastic. Definitely, definitely cherish what you've got because it's a, it's a once in a lifetime. At least that's how I like to do these things. Yeah. Now we, we've kind of focused a lot on, you know, the inspirational, but one thing uh, I, I forgot to ask is what attracted you to contentious trust and disputes in particular? So as I say, I didn't do a law degree. um, And even when I done the LPC, I didn't choose any private client modules. So I didn't do private client. I didn't do equity and trust. I don't even know what the modules are called because I didn't do them. I think (laughs) I did like personal injury, family and crime or something in my LPC. Because I always knew that I wanted to work with people, but I didn't necessarily know what area I wanted to work in. Um, And then when I finished my LPC and I got a job, I began working in property law. And initially I loved property law. I liked that it was quite complicated in the sense of, you know, reading title deeds and all these, you know, conveyancing documents from like the 1800s um, with all these like writing that you could barely understand, you know, and on deeds and things like that. And that really appealed to me. And I, I genuinely thought I would be a property solicitor. And then one day, one of my old colleagues called Giles, who is a contentious probate solicitor, started working in the same office as me. Um, And he sat opposite me and we basically just hit it off in terms of work. Like we got on really well. He was really funny and, you know, 
we used to have a laugh and go for lunch together. But I always used to like overhear his conversations and think like, what on earth is he talking about? Like, <laughs> what, what, what on earth is going on? And I just would like listen in to him. And I think over time, I just became more intrigued into what he did. And I started asking him about his workload and like saying like, what do you do? And like, what, what your case is like? And just basically taking an interest. And then I was lucky enough to get, you know, my third seat in my training contract with Giles and the team in contentious probate. And as I say, I hadn't done private clients. So I hadn't done a seat like just drafting wills or anything like that. I didn't have any of that experience, which the team usually would require from a trainee. Um, but I, again, maybe I was just lucky again. Um, but I got a seat with them. And after about a week of working on their files, reading up, you know, the type of work that they were doing, I was just like, I just love this really. You know, I don't love that I'm dealing with clients that are facing such traumatic circumstances or distress, but the area was just really appealing to me. The law was really interesting. The cases, as I say, were also different and what people were like fighting over it just, it really shocked me. And I just began looking forward to going to work. And I was always intrigued, even on days off, I would constantly be like texting someone and being like, so what's happened on that file? And that had never happened to me before. So I think if I hadn't met Giles or started listening and being nosy to what he was up to at work, I probably wouldn't be in contentious probate right now. But um, yeah, I would say definitely that was my inspiration. And then I just found my feet in the team. Funny how things happen. Again, within your philosophy, everything happens for a reason. So yeah. I'm guessing sitting next to Giles was just meant to be because it led to where you are now. Exactly. Having Giles, you know, move to the same office as me and invade my space and, you know, annoy me on a day-to-day basis. It just, you know, helped me fall in love with contentious probate. So shout out to Giles, basically. <laughs> <laughs> so now having kind of working in contentious trust and probate for a while, what do you think are the skills that are necessary to excel in the area? I think in terms of work, as I've touched on, being organized is absolutely key. So ensuring that, you know, you're managing your time properly, you're you're prioritizing your workload and you're making sure that you're dealing with the things that need to be dealt with when they're dealt with. So whether that be, you know, diarizing key dates or, you know, working on a particular file because, you know, correspondent needs to go out on that rather than another client's file. So remaining organized and on top of your workload is absolutely essential because the minute you start slacking, I think is when you would begin to feel overwhelmed. And as you say, you're more likely to make mistakes or feel like, God, I don't know what I'm doing. So being organized is absolutely essential. And if you're not organized, contentious probate probably isn't the right area for you. In terms of an interpersonal skill, being an empathetic person is key because as we've touched on, we're working with we're working with clients who are deeply distressed a lot of the time. They're emotional, they're scared, they're worried. And you need to be able to engage with your client and understand. And, you know, a lot of the time you'll be on calls with them and they will start crying because it's distressing. And sometimes for some solicitors, that will be deeply uncomfortable because they wouldn't know how to handle that situation. And, and that's completely fine. But as a contentious probate solicitor, you've got to be able to understand how clients are feeling and to to try and soothe them as much as you can really. And to just tell them that it's going to be okay. Like even if you're not just referring to the case now, but just in general, because 
they're grieving and they've lost someone that they love and it's difficult. And I think just knowing that they have someone they can reach out to is so important. So being able to have those skills where you can be empathetic, caring and understanding and even sympathetic to them is really, really important as well. And so how would you recommend law students kind of develop these skills whilst at university? I would say, I think... And I I think I'm right when I say this, and I know this from my personal experience. When I was at the University of Law and I was doing the GDR and the LPC, a lot of people were focused on, you know, securing a training contract and focused on, you know, making sure that they were all suited and booted and they only spoke at certain times and they only said certain things and they had to sound as smart as possible. Whereas for me, that that was that was never me. You know, I've always been quite quirky. I've always been a bit outspoken. I don't say anything inappropriate at all. But again, you know, when people meet me, they they think I'm funny. And, you know, they think I'm, you know, fun to be around. And actually, I think just by showcasing your personality, you will stand out from the crowd a lot. Obviously, you have to do things in reason. And, you know, I'm not suggesting that you should go to a networking event and get absolutely smashed and embarrass yourself. (laughs) That's not what I'm suggesting at all. But what I mean is rather than standing there and blending into the background with everybody else who all looks the same and we're we're all dressed the same, we're all saying the same things, you know, like focus on what you have to offer as a person and whether that be, you know, that you grew up some, somewhere else, like you grew up in a different country and you moved to the UK, like that is so interesting. And you should definitely showcase that. And the same applies, you know, if, if you have an animal, like talk about it. Um, so I think, you know, just by being, I think people fear showcasing their personalities because they worry that they're not going to fit the mold of a lawyer. But as I say, the mold of a lawyer is is quite outdated. And depending on where you end up, you, if I was to be that suited and booted person who didn't showcase my personality, I wouldn't fit into the firm that I'm at now. So I think it just depends on where you want to go in life, where you want to end up. And I think just fine tuning the skills that you have to offer. So if you do think that you're funny or you do think that you're sarcastic, then showcase that. You know, if you do, I don't know, for instance, when I was younger, I used to do figure skating. You know, I tell people about that and they love that because they think, wow, that's such an interesting fact. So I think just reminding yourself that you are a person at the end of the day and we are all multifaceted and we all have so much to offer. I think by embracing those differences that you have and those individual traits, you will stand out from the crowd and people will remember you. So focusing on your academics is absolutely key because obviously you want to do the best that you can do because you need to be intelligent to be a solicitor. But at the same time, taking a step back and thinking about what is it that I have to offer that other people don't, I think is so important. So I would recommend law students focusing on those aspects. And actually, I think that's probably easier to focus on because we all know what we like about ourselves. And it's just about fine tuning those qualities and showcasing them to the world. And I think that's so important, especially now with the pandemic. I mean, you know, law was already competitive pre-pandemic and securing a, a place, but also in, in securing a place that might not be, say, necessarily the straightforward kind of commercial role. Any type of kind of alternative role was already more competitive due to kind of the underrepresentation of these alternative opportunities. 
And so I think now people are, are having, law students and recent law graduates are having a, a sense of existential crisis and not knowing what the future holds for them. And as somebody who's gone through several existential crises, you know, what advice would you give to law students who feel unsure and want to be bold? Yeah, I I think for me, as I say, I... I am in a privileged position now speaking on here as a solicitor who has a great job at a great firm and, you know, I'm doing, fulfilling my dreams. So I think it's quite rich for me to say to people, I'll just do this because I think, well, hold on, you're, you're in that position now. You can say that. But I think looking back, I was, as I say, always optimistic and no one knows what the future is going to bring. And as I've touched upon, you know, life's short. And I don't think that we should dwell on all the things that we possibly might not achieve in life. Instead, we should focus on the things that we have achieved and can achieve. And I think as long as you put your mind to something and you do as best as you can possibly do, then that's enough. Like in life, things won't always happen the the way you want them to, and they won't happen when you want them to. And I think by being adaptive, it's, it works to you, to your benefit, because, you know, especially at the moment with COVID, you know, there might be people now that might not be getting their dream job and for another year, but that isn't to say that they won't get their dream job. It just might not be now. So use that time to focus on something else, whether that be, you know, starting a side business to make some extra income. Again, that is a great thing. To, so when you go for an interview, they can say, well, so what have you been doing in the last year? And you can say, well, you know, I, I, you know, finished university, I'd done the LPC, but I found it difficult to get a job. So I started a baking business and I now bake and I sell all these cakes. Like that is amazing because to a law firm, they're looking at you and they're thinking, okay, well, this individual has gone through some difficult times, but they haven't just sat around and dwelled on it and felt self-pity and felt like, you know, life's hard they've they've embraced it and actually they've they've used their skills and invested in something else and you know you've marketed you've been able to produce a business you're you're selling yourself so that means that you have all these interpersonal skills that you know all law firms want from their solicitors and actually again it makes you stand out so I would just say to people that you know life at the moment is tough absolutely it it is really, really tough, but it will be okay. And even if you don't end up being a solicitor, that doesn't mean that you haven't been successful in life. You could be more successful doing something else. You know, being a solicitor isn't the be all the end all of life, you know, and you could be a fantastic father or a fantastic mother, or you could go and travel the world and have all of that wealth of experience to share, you know, like we aren't just born to work. And I think as long as people are mindful of that, then actually, the life that you will live will be a lot richer because you'll be happy. And as my mum always says to me, happiness is key. And as long as you're happy, you will be fine. Wow. I mean, that, 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 got, that got really deep, but obviously get it very important to hear and, and especially nowadays. And I also think, you know, you are in a, in a privileged position, but that's almost kind of what we need in the sense that, you know, you've been through a, a lot and you've, gotten to the other side and yeah. you know you see there is light at the end of the tunnel so we need kind of lost students need to know that exactly and I think you're right you know I I don't want people to think oh you know Elle's just saying that because she's achieved all of this stuff and it's easy for her because as you say like I didn't have a training contract you know I did have to self-fund I have gone through some personal trauma in my life and it hasn't always been easy I wouldn't say that I'm the smartest person ever you know but 
I've just worked hard and I've kept a grip on that. And don't get me wrong, I'm speaking in an optimistic way, but there was definitely days where I was crying in the library or hiding under the desk or someone was like, do you want to go for pizza? Because you look an absolute mess because you've been here all night. Like that was me as well. Um, But as I say, as long as, as long as you're doing the best that you can do, like I am a massive believer that things will work out the way that they should do. And if it's not going your way now, it doesn't necessarily mean it will go that way for the other, like things do turn around. So if you're going through a hard time, just keep your head up and keep going because it it will be okay. Um, and if you're so destined and desperate to be a solicitor, it will happen. And actually, I have friends that had the same dreams as me and have become solicitors. And a year, six months later, they're like, do you know what? This just isn't for me. And I'm just going to go and do something else. And do you know what? Kudos to them because they tried it and they got there, but it wasn't for them. But that doesn't mean to say that they're not successful. You know, it just means that they respect who that they are and they accept who that they are. And that's so important. Perfectly put. We've we've had a lot of inspirational discussions. You know, I'm feeling already motivated just by all, all, all of these pep talks. But I like to end up uh, all these conversations on a bit more of a, of a lighthearted note. And I've got a couple of questions for you. One of them was actually an article posted by Bolt Burden the other week. Yeah. And it's all about uh, trust, specifically pet beneficiaries. What is it with rich people leaving vast amounts of wealth to their prized puppies and cats? So... The article that you're referring was an article that I wrote. And again, it boils down to Bolt Burden allowing us to write about things that we have an interest in. And I came across this article whereby I believe he was an American citizen had left, as you say, a large sum of money on trust for his dog. Um, And I started researching it and I found that actually he wasn't the only individual that's ever done this. There are a lot of people that leave money, whether that be as a gift to somebody that they trust for the benefit of their pet or they leave on trust for their pet. Um, and so, yeah, I wrote this article and I can't, I can't say why people, why there's been a spike in this, but I think, you know, especially Western culture, we love our animals um, and we want to ensure that they're looked after. And I think a lot of people, especially if they don't have like children or relatives that they can leave their money to, they want to ensure that their prized possession, i.e. their little fluffy cat or their perfect little pooch, is going to be cared for after their passing. So there has been, you know, a lot of celebrities like Carl Lagerfeld, for instance, he left a vast sum of money for his cat. And yeah, people, there is just definitely going to be a rise in people leaving big sums of money to make sure that their animals are going to be protected after they pass away, which is really sad in one sense, but also really quite cute in another sense. So, I mean, Carl left a vast amount of money, 153 million pounds, according to the article. I mean, it's, it's, it seems he financed for all nine lives, not just one, just nine, nine different lifestyles. That isn't taking into account that the cat also had his own income because he was like a superstar. So he didn't need Carl's money, but you know, like good for him. Again, I guess he's been a very lucky cat. So bless him. And so now my next question is, what has been your favorite dramatized legal character on TV and movies? You said that you've always known that you've wanted to become a solicitor, always wanted to kind of, you know, do something in the law. What has been something in pop culture that's attracted you uh, to that career? Do you know what? Like, excuse me, this will probably sound ridiculous, but 
I've never watched Suits and, you know, I know people are probably going to be raising their eyebrows like, what? Because people a lot of the time will say that I remind them of Donna. I don't know who Donna is. I think she's the secretary. And I'm going to take that as a compliment. But um, a lot of people say that I remind them of Donna. Um, As I say, I don't... I don't particularly watch a lot of TV, if I'm honest with you. I I like to read books and I like to read fiction. Um, and as I say, my father is a solicitor. And I think that's where I got, you know, an appreciation of law and actually an inspiration of, oh, this is kind of a cool job. So I don't think there's any like pop kind of shows on TV that I, I used to watch and think, yeah, like I want to be like that because there isn't. <laughs> Sorry. No, 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 no. It's almost a, a relief. It's a bit of a relief to find someone that actually doesn't watch suits. <laughs> you love kind of contentious trusts and disputes. There must be at least one subject, either the GDL or the LPC, which you absolutely hated with a passion. Do you know what? I, I don't actually think that there was an area that I hated. I know on the LPC, <laughs> it's so funny. I think there's a business module and I think you get that really really fat textbook with all the business law and I remember thinking like for god's sake like I am not into this at all like I have no interest in business law like as I say I'm not interested in the corporate world like I have no idea about like tax and things like that so I think I went in initially like I'm gonna hate this um and I remember I had a teacher his name was Alexis um at the University of Law and he taught the module and he was so engaging and so fun that it actually changed my idea of what business law was and I actually really really enjoyed that module and although it was probably the hardest module and the most intense academically I used to really look forward to those lessons so I would probably say that but I'm quite open when it comes to things. I'm kind of like, I just get my head down and I just get through things. I'm never one that's like, I hate this because I think if you tell yourself that you hate it, you're always going to do badly anyway. So if you just go in there, it's like reverse psychology. If you just tell yourself, (laughs) then it's fine. Like deep down after it's done and you've done the exam, you can reflect and be like, God, that was awful. But I think at the time, as long as you're just like focusing on the for me, it's always like focused on the end goals. As long as, you know, this is a means to an end. As long as I get through this module and I pass and I get a good mark or even like a reasonable mark because your your marks will balance themselves out, you know, then, then it's fine. So for me, I think, again, I was just quite lucky. I've never really hated anything and I just, you know, get on with it. It's an envious quality, having that radiant optimism to the extent that even the bad things don't seem that bad at all. It's probably looking back on it now. I'm saying, I'd probably speak very differently. But yeah, looking back on it like five years later is probably, you know, a bit different now. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, El, for coming onto the podcast. If any of our listeners have any questions and want to reach out, uh, can they do so? And if so, how? Absolutely. Like, I'd be more than happy if anyone has any questions or, you know, about contentious probate or actually they just want to have a chat about, you know, my funny articles that I write or, you know, just what I get up to or whatever, then I'm more than happy to have a chat because I like to natter. So yeah, anyone's more than happy to reach out. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Elle. No worries. Thank you. Well, that's the show, folks. If you enjoyed learning about contentious trust and want to know more, feel free to reach out to Elle. We've linked a LinkedIn profile in the show notes below. 
Special thanks to our Unsung Heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Waddell for scripting the show notes and blog posts, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute bang of a theme song. A special note, we'll be off for the next two weeks as a result of the spring break and hope that all of you will be enjoying your holiday. In the meantime, if you're new to the podcast, have a flip through our previous episodes to learn about the wide variety of career areas open to you and also the inspirational lessons on your career development journey. Till next time. Mm-hmm.